I'm Neil Barton. You're listening to The Background Report. For this episode, I interviewed Chelsea Rose Marcius about her excellent book, Wild Escape, The Prison Break from Dannemora and the Manhunt that Captured America. Hello? Hey, Chelsea. Yes, yes. Hey, how you doing? It's Neil. Hey, Neil. How's it going? Good. Just out of curiosity, with the Showtime miniseries, have you seen an increased interest in the book lately? Like, I haven't looked at statistics or anything like that. The book came out earlier this year, so yeah. I feel, I mean, I'm hoping that it helps. It helps the book and everything, but I personally don't know yet. And it's also kind of too soon to see with sales and stuff, whether or not that's at least for me, um, it's too soon to see whether or not that's had an effect, you know. It's really amazing. It's some great journalism you did. And I couldn't believe you got the surviving escapee to talk to you for what, like over 100 hours, I heard you say in another interview? As a journalist, how do you earn his trust and get him to participate? Yeah, so, well, well thank you very much. Um, David and I talked for a year and a half, and that was, it probably was even more than 100 hours, to be honest, but that's my best estimate each time I was with him was over six hours. And I was there for the first few months anyway, uh, quite often. Um, It wasn't in terms of trying to get him to talk to me or, or, uh, you know, continuing that relationship for that period of time. It David wanted to do it and I wanted to do it too. And I think we just worked very well together. Um, When I had, I went to five points correctional facility in March of 2016. And, um, I just showed up one day. He didn't know I was coming and I had no intention of writing a book at that time. I had just covered the escape for the New York daily news, um, the previous year in June of 2015. So I was curious about him and I heard he was, uh, at the point where the prison was letting, letting him to accept visits from people. So I just went there. I was again, interested in him as a person. i covered the story not knowing who he was, uh, which is kind of, it doesn't really happen for journalists a lot. Like if you're covering a story about someone, unless they're, um, I hate to say it, but unless they're dead, you you get to know them uh, through your reporting. And I just didn't feel that I got to know David. So I went and uh, sat down with him. I visited his mom the week before. And his mom said, you know, um, if you bring some quarters and get a $2, you know, sandwich from the vending machine, have lunch with him. Yeah, I think he would spend some time with you. They love that and vending machine I, food, yeah, don't they? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, it, 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 trust me, it's not the best because I ate a lot of it. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it's got to be better than whatever they're eating, uh, you know, on a daily basis uh, for their regular meals. So, yeah, we basically just got to talking and uh, he told me at that point, he goes, you know, you're the only journalist who's uh, bothered to show up to talk to me. Most people wrote letters and he felt there was an inauthenticity to that. And um, I I was, a, you know, at the Daily News, I was reported there for six, almost six years. Yeah. And then we just always showed up everywhere. It wasn't like a writing letter kind of place. So it was in my nature and my training and in my history to just do that. So I didn't even think about writing him a letter and that helped. And uh, I said, okay, well, I'd love to talk to you in two weeks. And I said, would you be willing to sit down with me again? And he said, yes. And that's how it started. The way you wrote the book, it almost felt like I was right there along uh, Richard Matt and David Sweat sloshing around in the woods. You know, it was very descriptive. And you got a lot of details out of him, but he also told you some very personal stuff, too, about his awful childhood and everything. 
it was interesting to get that inside look about how a criminal is made. Yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of like, well, thank you for the compliment. I am starting with the first thing that you mentioned. I wanted to write a book that I would love to read, you know, and my favorite books make me feel like I am in the story with the people um, and with the, the characters, if it's a novel. And I wanted to feel like my favorite novels in that sense, but be a, to be a nonfiction book, which was in and of itself a di- difficult thing, just because when you talk to people and you get that dialogue that you see in Wild Escape, that comes from interviewing people in a very specific way, asking them to relive conversations they had to the best of their recollection so that the dialogue can be created through them, through those interviews. For that part, I mean, in the description, I spent a lot of time in Danamora, in the area around Danamora. Um, there are a few other towns that are not too far away that I spent a lot of time in that are um, chronicled in the book because of where the escape takes the state troopers and where the escape takes. It takes um, David Sweat and Richard Matt. So a lot of the description comes from there. And um, now going to David in his past and his childhood, I felt that the only way to do this book properly was to try to show who he was and how he came to be. Um, I took great pains in the book not to ever describe Richard Matt or David Sweat as murderers. Um, sometimes if, uh, governor Cuomo is quoted as saying that or something, I include the quote because I think it's important to show how other people perceive them. Um, and it's not that they haven't committed murder. I just think that I, in order to get to know someone through a a piece of written work as best as one can, um, I didn't want any labels on them. Um, even though those are inaccurate things to say, it's just that I wanted people to see beyond that and say, you know, these, these, People started as people, and, and things went south for a number of ways, a number of reasons, rather. It seems like you didn't even have to use labels, because if you give a good description of the backgrounds of both of these guys, like you did, the reader can make their own decision. I came away feeling actually a little sympathy for a guy who shot and killed a sheriff's deputy, and I didn't think that was possible. And yeah. I kind of viewed him differently than I did Richard Matt. I mean, Richard Matt almost seemed like irredeemable, like an irredeemable character to me. But where David Sweat, he was a little more nuanced. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that, too. You know, I I often say that had the tables been turned and Richard Matt had survived and David was killed in the escape, I don't know if I would have ever done this book. I feel that Matt was just a different type of person. And, I mean, to, to be able to commit the crimes that Matt committed... They were pretty sadistic crimes. They're oh, pretty, yeah. pretty disturbing and just stuff. And, and that's not even, you know, that's not even the, the right word for it. I mean, it's, it's even worse than disturbing. It's horrific. David's crimes were also terrible, but it's not as personal, you know. And I don't oh, want to yeah. boil it for people that don't know, but um, right. yeah, with with Richard Matt, it, it, it's pretty personal crimes. I mean, they're yeah. I again, I just don't know if I could have sat down with somebody like that for that extended period of time. I, I have sat down with people like that and interviewed them, but but not for a, a year and a half, hundred hours, going up on my weekends, whatever, to to talk to them. I don't know if I would have trusted him. Um, yeah, yeah. To, R- Richard. To tell me his truth. He's not a guy I'd want to be in a room with, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he still has people that remember him 
how, you know, fondly from, from high school and grade school and stuff, which is, it's sad because I think there were people in his inner circle that he connected with and people had, he didn't, he didn't have it easy growing up either. It doesn't, you, you know, a lot of people will tell me, well, you, are you going to write a sob story about these people? Like there are a lot of us that don't have it easy and we don't end up killing other people yeah. um, or committing some sort of crimes. And I said, no, I know, I, I, I get that, but it doesn't mean I don't try to understand how they came to that point in their life either you know it's not an excuse it's just an explanation so this story kind of had a local angle for me because i grew up in western new york i have an aunt and uncle that live in north tonawanda that i would go to visit as a mm, child growing yeah. up and everything mm -hmm. and that's where richard matt i think grew up too right yep yeah and what's your yeah, from that area yeah do you have any connection to that upstate new york or north country or where did you grow up are you from this area? No, or? I I have no. Now I have a connection with it, but right. I had You're no in New connection York City prior. Now, right? yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, I I grew up in Ohio. Um, I went to college in Cleveland. I mean, I grew up in Cleveland area. I went to college in Chicago, and I came to New York for grad school, and I stayed in New York after that. And I yeah, I have New York obviously New York City connection, but as you know that a lot of people that aren't from New York or familiar with it lump upstate and like New York City is like the same thing. And oh, it, no, it's totally yeah. different, so far away from each other. And it seems so obvious to us, but other people, not as much. So when I went upstate and I'd go upstate for various things, I never had spent that much time in the, in the region. And I fell in love with it uh, while I was reporting during the escape because, I mean, we were out. For half the escape, I was in a cabin in the woods, too. That's where I stayed. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was right out there with them. And that was pretty cool for me. And getting to know a lot of the locals and having to rely on locals for, hey, I don't know how to get from here to here because I have no cell phone reception. I have, therefore, I have no GPS. And I have this, like, road atlas in the back of my car <laughs> that I was, like, consulting and, and whatever. But that. You know, sometimes it just helps to, to go and talk to people and ask them, hey, how do I get here? And I got to know some people that way and uh, made some friendships, really. And that also kind of prompted me, my love for the region. It's just, it, it's so beautiful. And um, especially the area around Danamora, there's like a, there's a vibe there that's very telling, I think. It's very remote, isolated, isolated. You feel it, too. Yeah. Um, which really drew me in, for sure. As a kid growing up, my family used to take us camping in the Adirondack Mountains. Is, that, is Dan Nomura near there? Yeah, yeah. It's on the edge of the Blue Line, which is what they called um, Adirondack Park. So, really, you're, you know, they, they also refer to Clinton Correctional being the name of the prison. Danamora being the village, but they're synonymous with each other because it's almost weird to think of one existing without the other. Um, but the area of Danamora, they call that little Siberia. They call Clinton Correctional little <laughs> Siberia because yeah. it's so, yeah, I mean, in the wintertime, it is cold, cold, cold. And uh, it, it feels very just like you are out in the middle of nowhere, very disconnected with the world around you. And that's part of the fascinating thing about this escape was not only did they breach all of these um, hurdles and breach this, well, they went under the wall, so they didn't breach it, but they went under the wall uh, yeah. and this fortress of sorts, 
But then they had to contend with the second part, which was the elements outdoors. It was summer, which I can't imagine them doing this in the wintertime, although I'm sure they, they would have given people a run for their money even in the winter. But yeah, just it was summer. I mean, they had to deal with a lot of bugs. You know, even though it's light outside, there's a thick tree canopy. So trying to figure out which way you're going, not having any technology, never having traversed that land before, pretty remarkable. And even in the summer there, it gets cold at night, overnight sometimes, right? Yeah, it's a good point. It does. It does drop. I mean, I was there during the summer when they were out, and uh, I remember bundling up sweatshirts, jeans, all that stuff, you know, T-shirt and jeans during the day. And at night I was, um, yeah, it it dropped low. I mean, 40s, I would say, probably lower in some areas. Now, you mentioned the lack of cell phone reception and radio towers up there. You talk about that in your book because that ended up being a major hindrance to the law enforcement agencies while they were searching for these guys, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys, too, were not from the area. So imagine they're bringing up all of these troopers from downstate to aid in this escape. I mean, that's how big it was. They had over 800 at one point. and. You know, so you got all these downstate guys that are coming up, have never dealt with the elements that exist in this particular region. So other troopers are having to take time out of their day to help them, these downstate guys, help them navigate where they're going. And on top of that, you have service issues just like you would for, for me as a reporter. They Just because they have some better technology than I do doesn't necessarily mean if the towers aren't there to receive the, the signal, they're not there. There are a lot of areas where they just don't have a cell phone tower for, for miles and miles. I was actually uh, recently in Alaska a few months ago, and that was, the, that was the only other place I've been to. And I haven't been to a ton of places, but there's only other place I've been to with less cell phone reception. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So if you were... Yeah, I'm it, sure there are others in the world, but yeah. Yeah, and I imagine that being a problem, even for the people, just civilians, if they're walking around, if they're driving down the road and they see one of these guys sprint across the road or something like that, that and they say, oh my God, that's the guy whose picture I saw. If they don't have reception, it's not like they could, can pick up their phone and dial 911, right? I mean, they have to go find the nearest Yeah. Landline. Well, and without, you know, a lot of people know the story anyway, but there are some tidbits in the story that people may not know. I mean, there's this guy, John Stockwell, and without giving too much away about his narrative arc, he is a CEO that, you know, see something and he has to run for a a phone and he's got his wife's cell phone with him at the time. And, but, but it's not doing him any good. So he's got to, he's got to get into town and make a call and that you lose time when you do that for sure. And so he, like a lot of law enforcement, you know, it's easy to lose some time if you have to go somewhere and, and pick up a signal. Now, when you talk about these two inmates, Richard, Matt and David Sweat, their escape plan, it struck me, from reading your book, that they didn't have long-term thinking going on here. There wasn't a long-term plan. Did I get the wrong impression? I mean, did Matt really have people in Mexico who could have helped them? I think that's questionable. I think I think Matt, without having met Matt, but my impressions of Matt from everybody I've talked to, was that he he was very, very confident. And I think that he would have perhaps figured it out. But I don't think he had this long-term plan of like, okay, when we're in Mexico, we're going to be all situated. I think it would have been more of a now what sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, they did have some loose outline. However, it was all, it was all pretty much, I guess it went to, I don't know, 
try not to swear here. You can swear. No, you can swear. It's all right. <laughs> it all went to shit. Yeah, yeah, it all went to shit. Um, when Joyce Mitchell, the prison seamstress, did not show up to pick them up as she had promised and how they had planned. And David told me in our uh, conversations that he had a seeking suspicion that Joyce wasn't going to show. And Matt was very, very confident she was. And David chose to believe Matt that, okay, well, if you say she's showing, I don't know about this, but I think we should take extra precautions just in case she doesn't show, but let's plan on her showing. When she didn't do that, I mean, she was the one with the vehicle. She was the one that was going to drive them. Um, and they would have at least had a good, a pretty good head start before law enforcement put two and two together that she was the one that had um, been their getaway ride. Joyce so Mitchell, after that, yeah. It's the prison, just to describe real quick, she's the prison seamstress. She's a civilian prison employee, and she's in charge of the uh, sewing shop that the inmates work in, right? Yes, exactly. And so Richard, Matt, and David Sweat had worked in one of the tailor shops with her for a period of time. That's how they got to know each other. David was ousted from that tailor shop, which I talk more about in the book. But essentially, David was pretty miffed about that. And Richard Matt was actually the one that said one day, well, you know what? I'm tired of this place, too. Why don't we just break out of here? And David said, okay. And Matt said, I can get Joyce Mitchell to help us because she likes us, you know, and she had actually kind of she had fallen for David for sure, and and then had some you know interactions with Richard Matt. <laughs> interactions, yeah, we'll call him that. That's fine. <laughs> did you talk to Joyce at all? I did. I did. You did. I, I talked to Joyce. Yeah, I think it was four or five times. I'm forgetting now, but it, it wasn't nearly as long as I talked to David, and I wish it had been. And I would have yeah. continued talking to her. But what happened was there was one day I went to visit about two years ago now about this time last year. And Lyle Mitchell, her husband, and Lyle worked at the prison. Yeah, and um, Lyle was still with Joyce. And as far as I know, as of September, as last I heard, he's still with her. And I, I don't see them breaking up if they haven't broken up from from all of what happened during the escape they're, yeah. they're going to be together um lyle shut down the interviews essentially he said i don't want my wife talking to you and I, I, to be honest i don't think lyle knew that joyce and i were talking and i think she told him is how i understood it and and the shows and yeah. the, the shows in the movies that i've seen about this prison escape so far they make it seem like he knew what was going on or he was picking up on what was going on between Joyce and these inmates and what their plans were. But that really wasn't the case at all, was it? I mean, did he have any clue? No. I mean, as far as Lyle has told me, and, and remember, like, a lot of the um, the movie stuff, and, I, and I, again, I haven't seen the, the miniseries. Nothing against the miniseries, the, the series, uh, the HBO series, rather. Showtime. Showtime. Yeah, Showtime, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just that I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm so, like, fact-based. And because I know all the facts of the, the, the story, like, I think it would bother me <laughs> if it, they took any kind of, you know, um, what you have the license to do that if it's fiction. You can kind of do that. And I think they, they might have done that in that case without having seen it myself. Lyle has been consistently adamant and Joyce and, and David all three have been consistently adamant that Lyle did not know anything. So when I've got three people telling me, because I did have some conversations with Lyle, when I got three people telling me he didn't know anything, I, I tend to, to believe that. That, you know, David has no reason to protect Lyle, so why would he yeah. tell me that 
And do you yourself know. a favor. If you if you like it to stick to the facts, don't watch any of the stuff that's out there because they take a lot of liberties. You know? And it makes me wonder, the story itself, what actually happened is so fascinating. Why would you have to play around with the facts? Why would you have stuff happen that didn't? Yeah, and maybe I should ask you, I mean, did they make it seem that Lyle really didn't know or did he just have an inkling something was wrong or off? Well, the Lifetime movie, which was laughably bad, they made it seem like he was starting to suspect that there was something going on with between his wife and David Sweat and the Showtime series. Mm-hmm. The Showtime series, uh, there's a scene last night's episode where he finds the painting of the pugs that mm-hmm. Richard Matt gave to her. And then he goes to the sewing shop and confronts Richard Matt and says, why are you giving my wife paintings? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, I don't think that happened in the book, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I will say that I know Lyle didn't. I, see, I had, when I talked to Lyle, I don't think he was so against the paintings, but people, you know, Stiller's people might have consulted with him and maybe he felt different at a different time. You know, you interview people at different times and certain things strike him a certain way or not. So I don't want to say that maybe he told them something different. I don't know. But what I do know and what I would say is that Lyle did not know that they were planning any kind of escape. He might have felt uncomfortable with this guy giving some a painting or something. Maybe he, you know, Lyle told that to other people. But I would go with no on the escape whatsoever and no about any kind of relationship, like any kind. I mean, whatever, you know, what happened in the, the back room in the tailor shop, yeah. in the supply room. I mean, Lyle had no knowledge of that is what he told me. No inkling or whatever that anything like that was going on. Do you think this whole thing could have been avoided if the prison just followed its own rules and some basic security protocols, like having everyone, employees included, go through the metal detector (laughs) a lot yeah yeah i mean joyce was bringing in all of these tools that david and matt used to help them break out of clinton correctional and she did that by putting them in a vat of raw hamburger meat and it was custom at clinton to allow food stuff and and things like this to just go bypass security and that was that is not okay in uh, like you know the the state corrections handbook. Like you're not allowed to do that. That is not protocol. But it had been done there for so long. People become complacent, relaxed. I think you know a lot of these people. They see the same people every day. It's like you go to work every day. Nothing happens. Every day is pretty uneventful. And they start getting lax in certain areas, in certain areas of security, because nothing has happened. I mean, things happen within the prison, but nothing of this magnitude for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so had had that raw vat of um, raw hamburger meat, meat had that yeah. Vet, yeah, that gone through a metal detector, he of course would have wondered why the heck does she have hacksaw blades in there in a <laughs> you know a chisel and a, I think it was a punch or something. Yeah, I, she'd I have some that, explaining to do yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same thing with other checkpoints too. It, it was like that other times as well. So. So these two, David Sweat and Richard Matt, ended up in cells next door to each other in what's called the honor block. And I guess that's mm-hmm. like a quieter a quieter wing of the prison that's kind of a couple floors up, right? Above the noisy general population down yes. below. Yes. Yeah. 
and it's a desirable place to be. And how did they end up in there just from years of good behavior? Or is it because they kind of got in good with this corrections officer, Gene Palmer? Yeah, I think it was a combination of all those things. They had exhibited good behavior over time. And there was actually a point where David was taken out of the honor block. Yeah. Um, or at least, yeah, he was taken out of the honor block. And Richard, Matt helped end up getting him back in there with Gene Palmer's help as well. And not only in there, but situated next to Richard Matt so that they'd have these adjacent cells. But it was just, yeah, I mean, David was a good inmate, but whatever, whatever that means, <laughs> yeah. just, you know, he did, he did what he was supposed to do. He worked, he, uh, you know, didn't get into uh, fights all the time. You know, I'm sure things happened. Uh, I know things happened, but it was for the most part, he was pretty well behaved as well as Richard Matt And Richard Matt was kind of feared as well. And I think what happens with a lot of these guards, not having been a guard myself, but you know, obviously, but talking to a lot of them, is that they just want their life and their days to be easy. They don't want any trouble. They don't want any people making their life more difficult than it has to be. And Richard Matt, for some of those guards, like Gene Palmer, helped keep the peace a little bit. You know, he yeah. was respected among some and respected and also had an intimidating quality to him, which is kind of a, a perfect thing in prison, I suppose. I mean, nobody's going to mess with you and people are going to respect you. I mean, that, that yeah, that helps. So guards would kind of use that to their advantage. Just let Matt be the one keeping the peace. And you do this for me. You get information for me, you know, uh, based on who's doing what wrong out in the yard. And I'll have your back. You know, if I'm the guard and I want information from Richard Matt, who's helping me out here, then I give him something in return, whether it's oil or paints or whatever, painting supplies, brushes, that sort of thing to canvas so he could do what he wanted to do, which was portraits and landscapes and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about Gene Palmer, the prison guard that was kind of close with Richard Matt? You just described a little bit about how their relationship worked, but Gene had no idea this escape was going on, I'm pretty sure, right? Yes, he had no idea. He, He was breaking prison protocol by getting them certain things and allowing them to have access to the catwalks and things like that. Yeah. But Gene... But Palmer didn't realize that they were doing this with their time and this with the tools that he had given them and that this being the planning of the escape, right? The plan to break out. I, you know, Gene Palmer was one of the a few people that I approached that just did not want to talk to me about this book. That was definitely a disappointing thing for me because I so badly want to talk to Gene Palmer, but he just, yeah. you know, as far as I can tell, hasn't talked to anybody about it. So I had a piece, Gene's story. And because of this, by the way, I, Gene's part in the book is, is less because as a reporter, you know, I can't take liberties like that. So, you know, I just have to go with what I know and beyond you can't, that. Yeah, I, you I can't, can't put, really you there. can't put yeah. thoughts in people's heads or put words in their mouths, right? No, absolutely not. No. And, um, and that's the thing. So I just had to kind of go with some interviews I'd done on the periphery to help me build this person who I thought was as best and fair a representation of Gene that I could do without actually having spoken in myself. From everything I've gathered, Gene was, um, or is, alive. He was a guy that, you know, had some good qualities. He was sending money back to, he was actually married to a woman. I believe she had MS, if I remember correctly. And uh, he's illegally married to her, but he was with someone else. So he made sure his wife was taken care of. 
while it just they lived in different homes, different living situations. They still looked after her while also seeing someone else who actually also worked at the prison. And I think Gene lived a, uh, lived a very simple life. He'd go to work, come home to his partner. He played in a band, Fuzzy Ducks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just kind of lived this life. And I had heard that he drank a lot. I didn't emphasize that too much in the book because I don't think it's fair to make that totally part of somebody's character if I don't you know, know all the specifics and they don't get a chance to say anything. For some people in that area, there's not it's a quiet area. So drink and stuff like that may might have helped pass the time for Gene. Oh, sure. It the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I'd heard that he was um, a pretty nice guy. I mean, I'd also heard that he was quick to temper, that a lot of people said that, but he wasn't a bad guy either. And either way, it does kind of, I, I did feel for Gene that, you know, he was trying to just make his life easier in prison. Did he do the right thing by giving these guys what they wanted, what they asked for? No. And it ended up screwing him in the end. I mean, he got some prison time. He lost his job. So yeah. it didn't wasn't but, worth it, but I I understood I you know I just kind of felt bad because he got looped into something that he didn't realize he was contributing to. Well, there's a lot of misleading headlines out there about him, like prison former prison guard who aided in escape of convicts is getting out of prison and this and that. And it's like, well, no, that might be technically true, but he wasn't technically in on this true, plan, but you know? yeah, right. I I'd like to think that, and again, I don't. It's not that I'm like sympathizing with any one person in this whole thing. They all have culpability, but I could see just putting myself in their shoes. I hope that I wouldn't do what they did, but you kind of realize that humans are flawed. And if he was just trying to make his life easier by doing these things, should he have done it? No. Should he have given them tools? No. Or access to areas? Absolutely not. But, you know, he just wanted life to be like, clock in clock out yeah and like you said did he aid in the escape yes but not wittingly he didn't know that his supplies were going to that so the escape plan itself just cutting the grates cutting through the walls of their cell was only the very beginning wasn't it months that david was back there crawling around hammering through walls sawing things in order to make his way gradually yeah yeah they started in january of 2015 and they were, you know, they were out of the manhole by June. So six months is a relatively short period of time. So the first part, like you said, was they had to, David had to gain access to the catwalks to go down and uh, into the labyrinth of tunnels below. And he was familiar with the catwalks because Gene Palmer had allowed him to work out there. So he was already yeah. getting a little bit of the lay of the land that he was going to be working in for the next few months. So once he successfully is able to get out of his prison cell by removing an air vent, mm -hmm. right, yeah. uh, that, that allows air to circulate through, once he is able to remove that, which he does quietly, you know, during recreational hours when other, other people are, you know, watching sports or whatever, he's doing this, yeah. uh, when the guards aren't looking, and aren't checking on him. So he does that and he ends up going down. He starts feeling his way through this labyrinth of tunnels. It's like a maze down there, as he describes. And he has no blueprint for how to navigate down below. And he is going down below and working his way every night closer and closer to, to a way out, to try to find a way out. And th he does this by Yes, you know, he's sawing through different things and hammering things, but he's got to do it very quietly because things clang, you know? Yeah. And so he has to work very quietly, very 
and it's a slow process just because, you know, you have to, when you're, you're not, you know, when you're hammering away at something, you're not cognizant of the amount of noise it makes. It doesn't matter. You can hammer quickly and stuff. But here he's got to be very quiet. So it's very slow. Was he doing this at night when he was supposed to be sleeping or was it only during his rec time, like 90 minutes of rec time in the evening? Well, when he was actually down below, he would go about at night because he needed much more time to do this rather than just an hour and a half. So he would spend, you go after the last standing count and he, you know, he was familiar enough on the block. He knew that guards didn't check after a certain point, even yep. though they're supposed to. So he goes after standing count, goes down. And by the way, Richard Matt wasn't going down with him because Rich, Richard Matt's claustrophobic and didn't want to deal with it. And really this is David's <laughs> forte. It wasn't Richard's as much. So he would go there, work by himself all night long, come back up. And then he makes sure he was all cleaned off because you get dirty working yeah. down there. I uh, get his hot plate, scrub himself and make sure he was up for the next standing count. So he wasn't sleeping all that much either. You know, he was down there. Yeah, when's night. the guy sleeping? Uh, to, to, yeah, I don't know. How's he getting I his rest? <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know, I have no idea. I think he'd maybe, maybe come back a little earlier sometimes, catch a, catch an hour or two, yeah. maybe sleep during rec, rec hours at that point when he could, but. By the way, the hilarious yeah. part was they both had to slide through a steam pipe at one point. And the steam pipe mm -hmm. was, it was turned off because it was summertime. But I thought it was hilarious that Richard Matt got stuck in the pipe because he was, he was too chubby. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. And that was the thing. When, when David would recount these things to me, he would still laugh about it as if it was just happening. Yeah. And um, you could kind of see their relationship that way. You know, the book really shows the relationship through... David died because Richard Matt isn't here to talk to him about their relationship, their yeah. friendship. Everything, you know, David has a lot of humor. He's kind of a funny guy. Um, yeah. And when he recounts things, he always recounts the humorous part of the situation more so than even like the sad part or the disturbing <laughs> part. So when he does tell him, he'd always tell these Richard Matt stories. And one of them was like trying to pop him out of the steam pipe. And he's like, you know, he, had, he told David had told me, like I told this guy to, to lose weight and to make <laughs> sure he could fit. And like, we went over everything, you know, I'd help him with his diet. And here we are, can't get him out. And like trying to squeeze him out, like a cork out of a bottle, you know, and um, just, yeah, just funny. And, and those, I like those moments because they they kind of were a comedic relief, a little bit of alleviation that there's all this tension and there's all of this dark things, you know, and these yeah. two people that have really dark paths. I think for the reader to see the lighter side helps a little bit, too. Once they're out, Joyce Mitchell doesn't show up. These guys are screwed, basically. Now they have to get away on foot. And that's where yeah. Richard Matt being out of shape really made a difference. David was very muscular and athletic, and Richard Matt just couldn't keep up with him. And I got the sense from your book that he was actually holding David back. Absolutely. And again, had Richard Matt been alive and I interviewed him, he might have had a very different version of events. Right, right. But I felt David's recounting of what happened was very accurate just based on results. Yeah. It, it was true. I mean, they found, you know, Richard Matt was drunk when they, when he was killed, he, you know, they found his blood alcohol content and I forget what it was now, but it, he was intoxicated. It made sense that he was a drinker for all intents and purposes and hadn't had a lot of stuff on the inside, any good stuff. So as soon as he gets on the outside and they get into some of these hunting cabins, which aren't being occupied during the summer because it's the summer months upstate, there are a lot of uh, liquor stored in those cabins. So people don't have to 
bring the liquor back and forth. Yeah. So they he started raiding the cabinets. That's where you really start to yeah. see the difference between those two. Because mm-hmm. David just David just wanted to raid these cabins for food and Richard's wanting to take guns and liquor and David's saying, Are you crazy? Like put the gun down. We don't need it. It's just gonna cause problems. Right, right. Yeah, it, it it's definitely through the course of them being out on the run, there's this devolvement of Richard Mann. You forget who he is for a moment sometimes, or at least I would. Mm-hmm. And you kind of felt sorry for him in a way, just that, you know, I think it's any person that you see they're unraveling, even if they're like the most unsavory of people. Whenever I see someone unraveled like that, it's like, oh, that's just such a shame. Your book does a great job at showing him unraveling while he's on the run. Thank you. And Thank you. I, 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 you know, yeah. I had to wonder at times whether he was more on a suicidal, self-destructive mission and less concerned with actually escaping. You know, David told me, to your point, that this is actually, I think, one of the first, is he the first or second time we ever met? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Matt, because he calls him Matt, Matt's number one thing was that he just wanted to die free. Yeah. So in a way, he got he got what he wanted. He didn't want to die in prison locked up. And I'm not saying, you know, I could already imagine listeners saying, well, he didn't deserve that. Well, I don't, I'm not saying he deserved or didn't. It's just what he wanted. And I think David, from David's perspective, felt good that at least he could help Matt get that. David always says feel a little guilty, by the way, because eventually they part ways and I think that's always going to affect him on some level. They, they do part ways, and it ends up being a little too late for David that he finally decides to leave him behind, right? But he still got, David still got pretty close to the Canadian border before he was found by a trooper by chance, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was right there. Very, very close. He was in uh, Constable, and it's so close to the border of Canada. Like, this whole area is very close to the border, mm-hmm. but... This particular part was, yeah, it was, he was very well, within miles of it. Well, just out of curiosity, let's say the outcome is different and David makes it across the border. What happens then as far as the <gasps> I search? I don't know. You know? <laughs> I know. I don't know. I mean, they had, there was international help on this escape. You know, they, Canada was obviously alerted to everything that was going on. So, I mean, he might have crossed and might have been captured up there or, uh, you know, lived in the Canadian wilderness for some time. I'm not sure what would have happened, but it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I think that maybe they would have caught him anyway. Maybe it was just taking a lot more time. But David was resourceful. I mean, he, he could have perhaps figured out something. If anybody could, I could see him doing it. Yeah, and that's a lot of endurance you have to have. To make it 40 miles away on foot, even if it took a few weeks, that really takes a toll on your body and your feet and everything, I imagine. Absolutely, yeah, and he was awfully thin. I mean, he was in good shape when they captured him, but he was leaner. He had actually lost a significant amount of weight while kind of training for the escape. I mean, he was trying to be smaller and lighter and leaner, and Previously, he was more hulking. Like there was a point where, and it's hard for me to imagine this having sat with David, who seems on the slimmer side. There was a point where he was actually pretty beefy, <laughs> you yeah. know, pretty robust. He he lift a lot and he'd work out a lot. So he tra- he did his whole training regimen a different way in preparation for this. And he actually didn't want people. He did it slowly so people wouldn't notice so much. Yeah, because uh, they didn't want you know any changes within inmates and stuff. Any changes to the routine that's kind of a red flag. Like why are they doing this? What's going on with them? So he did things subtly. 
like that to try to lose some weight and get light and fit without people putting two and two together. When you were interviewing him, it was at Five Points Correctional Facility, but he's in Attica now, right? He's in, he actually went from Attica to Wendy, so he's in Wendy right oh. now. Can you um, tell me how he yeah. ended up at uh, those various places? Well, uh, just to a full disclosure, David and I, the last time I talked to him was, gosh, it was almost a year ago now. Okay. And, and really part of that is because David with a partner, like a woman right now, mm-hmm. I think he calls her his wife, although I don't think they're actually married. And, you know, I think David's in a place where he wants to move forward and not look at the, the past so much. Yeah. And, and I think also, I think, within their relationship, they've kind of decided to keep it to the two of them. And so I think they're just focused on that right now. But when some of the last times I was talking to him, he had come up with this idea that if he helped at five points, if he told the guards that he could help them have better security at the prison, like he could help improve their security there. You could tell them exactly how inmates would escape from their facility and in exchange and I believe the collateral would have been like he wanted more visits, uh, more, you know, because at, at that time, I think he was getting two visits a week. At, when I was with him and interviewing him, he was only getting one visit a week. So that was all he was allowed because he's in solitary confinement and he's yeah. an escape risk and, and all of these things. So they had, had really strict regulations on him. But, uh, well, this plan to try to help five points get better security through showing them means of how inmates could escape this whole thing backfired and he's transferred from five points to Attica and then while he was in Attica I he he was trying to make a point or a statement by saying you know I'm just not gonna eat anything so they end up putting him in the infirmary and part of that was he said he thought his food was poisoned and this sort of thing. And, and I have to say, you know, when I first started interviewing David, he had he had been in solitary confinement for a little bit, but not all that long. Mm-hmm. And I was always amazed at his mental resilience because you're spending really 24 hours a day by yourself. You have 23 hours in one cell and then your 24th hour spent in like a little rec pen. A That's cage outside. bigger than a yeah. cell. Mm-hmm, exactly. So the fact that he was so mentally resilient in our conversations was amazing to me. I mean, he'd come in talking to me and his voice wasn't always there. Sometimes he, because it, it was the first time he's talking to somebody that day. So it was like he lost his voice and it took a few minutes for his voice to come back, which was, you know, it's a sad situation all around. And anyway, you know, there was that time. And then there's the David now who I can't say... I, I know what his how he is now, but the last time I was talking to him, he was saying things that I felt were out of perhaps some desperation that maybe he didn't say at the beginning because perhaps getting to him, I don't know. I don't know how it couldn't get to him. It would get to me being yeah. by myself that long. There were some things without divulging because I don't think he'd want me to. He had proposed some ideas to me that he actually wanted me to help facilitate for him, like... He had some innovation ideas that he wanted to try to go to various places like DARPA and the governor and stuff. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I I did a little research on it. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just, it was so hard for me because I didn't want to be a person that was, and I had already done the book and everything. So the book was already in, it wasn't 
this wasn't ever going to be part of it. And I, and I, you know, I'm a journalist. I don't want to, I'm not somebody, I'm not there to facilitate these things, but um, I just did some research to see if it was even possible what he was trying to accomplish. And I think the technology had been done previously to the best of my knowledge and these innovations he came up with. I think he was just, again, trying to grasp for straws, like trying to hold on to some sort of hope that maybe he could, he could sell this technology and do this deal with the governor. He could barter with his freedom. And I just thought, well, the justice system is certainly not Governor Cuomo is going to um, pardon you or allow you to go free. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It's not a barter. After the escape at Dannemora, what kind of reverberations were there? Were there consequences for the other prisoners there? Did the guards retaliate against them? Well, during uh, the first few days when these guys escaped, yes. I would go to this little, it was a, it was a golf gas station on the side of Route 9 in, oh, man, I forget what community that was now. can't remember, so a little while ago. But as it, when I was working for the Daily News, I went to this gas station that's not too far from the prison. It's like a drop-off point. Yeah. So every day, newly released prisoners, they would come to this gas station, uh, get dropped off by the guards, and they'd have to wait for a Greyhound bus to pick them up and, and leave. And this is normal stuff. So they had the prison on lockdown for the first few days when the escape happened. So none of the normal things like new, you know, releases and stuff weren't happening until the lockdown was lifted. So as soon as the lockdown was lifted, I'd already heard about this little depot thing. So I went there and I spent the morning talking to some guys that were just got out. And they said that, you know, it was bad in there, like attitudes, demeanors, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. Everybody's thinking, are they going to look at me? And they're going to, are they going to question me? All these guards are wondering, like, is the state going to come down on us? But, you know, a lot of them didn't have a clean track record with things. It's not like everybody was pristine. They're doing exactly right. what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> right, right. So that, that, like you were saying, that frustration, that anger was definitely taken out on the inmates. And I make a point in the book saying, look, a lot of the inmates are not, I mean, they've, a lot of them, these people have done really horrific things. And some people are in there for much, much less severe crimes, drug related or whatever. Yeah. But, um, so I'm not offering sympathy, but there's a certain protocol when you work in a prison, how you treat inmates and you are not supposed to do some of the things that they were doing. So what's next? I know this is your first book, right? Do you have any uh, plans for another one anytime soon? Yeah. You know, it's funny when I, when I wrote this book, my dad and my mom too, uh, they had both told me uh, a long time ago that you know, I was going to write a book. And I said, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a huge reader. I love reading. So um, yeah. I always just wanted to be on that side of it. So I was kind of surprised at myself that I, I did it. And it was one of these things that it just happened. Like people are like, well, why did you decide to write a book about this? And I said, I don't really know. Like I was curious about David. I want to know more. I don't even know why I was so obsessed with the story myself, but I was. And it kind of came to me. And so I think the next book because I, I would love to do it again but the next one kind of has to come to me in that organic way as well because I feel like I, I've been writing for a long time but as a new author I could see how you feel this need and pressure to do another one just do another one and I feel like that's when the if your heart's not in it the writing fails like it just doesn't come through and my heart was yeah. totally into this book and I think that helped me write it and you know I actually when I'd read the book I read uh, myself when I was writing it, I read it four times out loud just so that I got a feel for what it was like and how it sounded. And I could pick up on things that didn't track well. And I was getting up at three in the morning, every morning, writing until seven, working all day. 
and then wow. going, um, I, I, I teach at NYU as well. And so a few days a week, I'd go to class and teach and I kind of do it all over again the next day. And I think to keep any kind of stamina up like that, <laughs> um, you have to really love it. So that's the long long answer to your question is that I got whatever I do next I just got to love it and I know once I love an idea I have an idea and I absolutely just want to do it and I'm obsessed with it that'll be the next book oh yeah it's, it's got to be something you're really really into right yeah absolutely I just think I've seen other people try to do things that they're not super into and either it doesn't come out the way they wanted it they're not proud of it or you know they just end up tossing it aside at some point because they're just like you know I'm not I'm not feeling it so are you teaching journalism classes over there at NYU? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I've been teaching. It's called Inquiry, the Written Word. It's basically a reporting and writing 101 course. I've got a great group of students this semester. I started it. This is my third semester teaching. And yeah, I love it. It's a small class of 15 students that are all aspiring journalists. And a lot of them have already made some pretty good headway in the industry, which is tough these days. So I give yeah. them a lot of credit. But can I ask you a, a, another journalism related question then real quick, since I'm not sure. one? Yeah. I understand when you visit inmates or interview them in prison, sometimes you can't even bring not even a recording device or a pencil or a piece mm -hmm. of paper, right? You can't even write down or take notes while you're talking to them. So how do you keep all that in your head? Like, how do you remember? Do you just do a full sprint to your car and whip out a notebook and start scribbling down or what? <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, it depends on the facility and the inmate, whether or not you can have anything with you. And sometimes you see these TV sit-downs where they'll have cameras and everything, but they go through a lot of hoops to get that done. And yeah. with David Sweat's case, nothing like that was going to be allowed in with David just because that was the rule and he's such a huge flight risk. So in terms of my methods, that was very difficult. And I I pride myself on being a really conscientious reporter and really exacting in, in quotes and in detail and everything. I obsess over these things, actually. I, I really, uh, you know, up at night thinking, did he really say it this way? Did he say it that way or whatever? So I had to go in and I could trust myself to memorize maybe a quote or two. And that mm -hmm. was pretty much it. Sometimes it was a little bit more if they were easier to memorize. And literally, he'd say something to me and I'd sit there for a moment and I'd say, hang on a second. And I'd say it back to him. So me, the act of me saying it back to him would help retain it. Kind of like when you write something down with your hand, it helps you remember it better. And I did these memory exercises at home to try to even prove my memory to be better in these interviews. And there were times where I interviewed, I went up to interview him. I was so tired from the traveling and working and everything that I left not being able to memorize anything because I just couldn't, like I was so exhausted. The, the main thing is that when I retain a few quotes, I come back to the car or the bus, whichever I took, I take a bus up sometimes if I didn't yeah. want to drive. And uh, I, I did, like you said, I wrote everything down. I first wrote the direct quotes down and then I wrote every detail of the conversation I could remember. And as I wrote, I remembered more, I remembered more and more, you know, that helped for those prison interviews, but it wasn't enough to carry me through an entire book. And I certainly didn't want to just depend on my memory for stuff like that. So after a certain number of months, Dave and I worked at something out. I asked him to start writing me letters with a lot of the information uh, oh, yeah. that he was telling me. Because I, again, like I just wanted to make sure what I had already written was lining up and jiving with what he was going to write to me. So he started writing me letters and he wrote me many letters, but two of them were two big ones. One was about his childhood, which... I'm trying to remember now. That was about probably a 30-page letter. And he writes very tiny. That's back and front. So mm -hmm. there was really small handwriting. And he wrote me a 60-page letter that was about the escape and his time in the woods. It was really like oh, after they came out of the manhole. 
Yeah, yeah. So that was super helpful. And I, I had a lot of those details already, but just I could rest a little easier having them in front of me. Then I also pulled transcripts um, from his interviews with the inspector general's office. They have their report uh, that they detailed things in their report. So I compared what he was telling me in 2016 and, and beginning of 2017 to what he had told the inspector general in 2015 when he was getting, when they went through the debriefing process post-capture. And really what he had said to them then, when he was telling me now, I got more details out of him or I, they might have those details. They didn't publish them though. But I was having all these more narrative details plus the details they, you know, that he had given me and them were all lining up. It was all making sense. So I felt I was fact checking him that way too, just to make sure that his own story was being told the same way. Because if there were glaring discrepancies between what he had told investigators initially and what he was telling me now, that would be a red flag for me that somewhere yeah. along the lines, he's not being forthcoming or telling me the truth or he's embellishing but really his story stayed the same over the course of several years. And I think if you're lying about things, it tends not to stay the same. You know, you start yeah. noticing those things. So yeah, that's kind of how we did it though. Plus after I, I knew David was going to be on board for the long haul and I, um, I knew that this was going to be a thing. I started bringing a lot of other people too. Like I started interviewing different contractors that work at the prison, different uh, prison guards and mm -hmm. locals and people from David's life. You know, his mother, I went to North Carolina to get his father, like all of these other people that helped me put the whole thing together. So really the focus of the book is always David Sweat when I talk about it because he's the guy that hasn't talked to anybody before. And the book is really is a lot of his story. But there are so many other people who, like, interviewing them made this book possible. Like, without them, it wouldn't have been. And their stories come through in the book, too. So I, I really enjoyed talking to everybody I spoke with, from law enforcement to, to the inmates to guards and everything, locals especially. Well, Wild Escape is a great book, and I appreciate you talking to me about it today. The thank, audio, Yeah, thank you, Neil. No problem. The audiobook's really good. It was really done well, too. I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah. Audible did the audiobook, and... Diversion Books published it in uh, you know trade paperback, and they both did a really really nice job with putting it all together. Well, don't be a stranger. Maybe we can do this again after you write your next book or major article. Oh, okay? thank you, Neil. I would love to. I would love to. All That'd right. be great. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Have all a good right. one. You too. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks to Chelsea Rose Marcius. If you like reading about prison breaks, trust me, you're gonna love this book. Go get yourself a copy of Wild Escape or order it on Amazon. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening. Thank you.